Welcome to episode 9 of the Nutrition Farming Podcast. Today, we're going to look more closely at the management of precious water. Now, we talk about nutrition farming as the interplay between minerals, microorganisms and humus. But of course, there's a fourth component. Nothing happens without water. And that'll be our focus today in a presentation called Water Management, Nurturing the New Gold. Now, there is no doubt that we're going to face increasing challenges with the availability and quality of irrigation water as global heating bites. So adopting strategies to counter these difficulties has really become kind of a prerequisite if we're going to survive and thrive amidst that maelstrom. Droughts and heat waves are one side of that equation, but we've also got to look at how better to manage rainfall that's coming in shorter, more intense bursts. I mean, many areas are actually still receiving their annual rainfall, but it's coming in two events rather than ten. So as we strive to suck up as much of this elusive moisture as possible, the word infiltration suddenly becomes hugely important. See, if we can soak up that extra moisture, we avoid the erosion that's currently stripping 7 to 12 tonnes of topsoil per year per hectare. According to accomplished soil scientist Professor Rutan Lau, at that rate of topsoil loss, we've got 60 years and there's nothing left. We can't feed 10 billion people without topsoil. We can't feed 2 billion people without it. So it's a hugely serious issue. So in this episode, we're going to look at multiple water management strategies. We'll look at how to minimise loss of moisture, how to avoid abuse of irrigation water, how to counter mineral contaminants like sodium chloride, maybe iron, manganese and so forth. We'll look at the role of microorganisms in the water saving equation. We'll look at basic strategies like mulching and more exotic alternatives involving water energisation. We'll also look at the important work of people like Peter Andrews and P.A. Yeomans in terms of structural strategies to improve water management. And finally, we're going to look at a remarkable device from AgriWater in South Africa. This device addresses many of the things we're going to chat about. It's a really timely technology that may well prove to be one of the most important water management breakthroughs in recent years. So let's begin by considering a basic water retention strategy involving something called mulching. So here, you're basically simply covering the soil surface to prevent evaporation and erosion. But just as importantly, you're feeding the soil life and you're providing a carbon input that will eventually become humus. Now, there are multiple inputs available depending upon your goal. Council mulch or wood chip has the greatest longevity it's primarily a fungal food, so it offers an opportunity to boost the creatures most missing in most soils in Australia. So wood mulch in this country is available from local councils for as little as $7 a cubic metre, but it does vary hugely in terms of the level of screening to remove plastic and other rubbish. So check the product before ordering. Now, I made a mistake on one of my farms where I ordered, I think, three or four truck and dog loads of council mulch, assuming it would be the same as my home farm on the Sunshine Coast, I had arrived, oh my goodness, I actually had to hire a couple of backpackers for a week just to clean up the mess after it had been spread. The farm looked like a rubbish tip. There was a massive array of, of steel and wood and, 
I don't know how the hell that went through a grinder, but lots of plastics and, and even some intact fishing reels, if you could believe it. So I don't think that many people are aware of the regenerative impact of heavy mulching. Just for an example, on my home farm, there was an excavation for a large machinery shed and it produced, left behind a thousand square metre bank that was basically sowed at clay that wouldn't even house a decent crop of weeds. So I put several truckloads of wood mulch on that bank and I created a four-inch layer of mulch and then I left it. Nothing else, just the wood mulch. Six months later, much of that mulch had decomposed and the regenerated high sodium soil was now filled with visible fungi and with earthworms. And then it became quite a simple process to add a little lime, some gypsum, some manure, some trace minerals, and then plant that super unproductive bank out in what has become a very productive food forest. So that's just mulch and its transformational impact. Now, plastic mulch with tea tape beneath can, of course, help to serve, retain moisture, but there's a downside. Gas exchange, which is oxygen in and CO2 out, is a little compromised under plastic. And when a soil can't breathe well, the more anaerobic pathogens say, you beauty, and you can often see an associated increase in disease pressure. Now, beneficial soil life also suffers a little beneath the plastic, despite the potential for a little bit of breathing through the planting hole. That's why it's quite rare to see earthworms beneath plastic. If you do have crops under plastic, it can be quite a productive strategy to fertigate with beneficial anaerobes who are not so oxygen-dependent, things like EM or perhaps my product called BAM, which is beneficial anaerobic microbes. And the addition of microbes that don't need to breathe can counter the negatives of plastic mulch. The South African technology, this oxygen technology that I mentioned earlier and we'll discuss later, delivers multiple species of oxygen beneath the plastic and that can have a major impact on stimulating soil life and root growth. We'll talk about that later, as I mentioned. So on my farms, I don't use plastic. I actually favour the UV-treated woven biodegradable polypropylene weed mats. They are more expensive than plastic, but they can last for several seasons and they'll have more longevity if you just give them a light covering of mulch to shield them from the sun. That kind of fabric readily absorbs rainwater and oxygen, so it breathes and moisture can get through, but it shuts out 95-97% in some instances of the light, and that of course prevents weeds from coming through. So wood mulch has the greatest longevity of the natural mulch options, and it has the best potential really for fungal stimulation and humus creation. But it depends on your goal and what you're seeking. There are things like fertilising mulches, and if you're looking for something like that, it's really hard to beat loosened hay. It's a super protein-rich mulch that basically sends the soil life into a swoon. It's jam-packed with protozoa that earthworms love, so this can be a great management tool to bring back these little fertiliser machines called earthworms. Now, a popular permaculture strategy and it's a really good thing to do in your garden, even on the farm it's possible. But that involves the planting of individual lucerne plants throughout a vegetable plot or an orchard. This legume fixes nitrogen, of course, but it also breaks the bond between calcium and phosphate with its acidic root exudates, and those exudates also encourage beneficial fungi. Now, the flowers of lucerne are absolutely sweet, and delicious and jam-packed with antioxidants and you can put them in your salads or just snack on them but 
Probably most importantly, you can use a brush cutter and cut and drop the loosened bushes on a regular basis and you're constantly generating that fertilising mulch, so it's a really nice strategy. Cover crops can also serve as a living mulch, of course. Just get a thermometer and test the soil temperature in midsummer and soil with any kind of cover crop and compare that to a bare soil. It can be as much as 20 degrees Celsius difference. And there's a massive loss of moisture involved in a bare soil when temperatures reach 50 degrees Celsius compared to you know 30 degrees next door when there's a living mulch cover. And of course you can terminate that living mulch cover crop with a roller crimper perhaps to create a further protective layer in which you can plant in no-till farming. So let's look now at microbes and moisture. Look, we're digging deeper bores now than ever before. And often, even that deep water is salty. It's, it's really important to realise that water at great depth has been formed drip by drip through the rock substrates for thousands of years. It's not going to be replaced in your lifetime or within multiple generations. Once it's gone, it's gone. And it is going. Snow-based irrigation is also at risk due to global warming and many major river systems across the world and dams are at dangerously low levels. The message here is not to despair, but to repair our natural moisture management systems. So one of the first things we'll look at, of course, is humus. Humus holds its own weight in moisture, but as importantly, it houses bacteria that produce a sticky gel-like substance that operates pretty much like water crystals to further enhance moisture retention in the root zone. So you've got the humus sponge and you've got the organisms it contains that also produce a water crystal-like effect. We were simply supposed to have a plant cover, and that's what makes the concept of chemical fallow so pitifully bankrupt, if we're looking at it from a science perspective. I mean, plant roots themselves produce a substance called mucogel that holds several times its own weight in water, so it's patently obvious that in the natural scheme of things, we always need to retain a cover on the soil. The most important ratio in regenerative agriculture is not actually a mineral ratio, it's a ratio called the fungi to bacteria ratio. And it's of supreme importance in the link between water management and soil biology. Now, most soils that you look at are fungal depleted, so they lack the infiltration that comes with the creature responsible for the crumb structure that can absorb water so effectively. Fungi are also responsible for stable humus. That's the sponge that lasts for over 35 years in your soil. So bacterial humus, 12 months shelf life, fungal-derived humus lasts for 35 years. So things like legumes within cocktail cover crops or legumes beneath cereal crops or legumes intercrop like peas and canola, which is called penola, tend to stimulate fungi with their acid exudates and that can help to improve the fungi to bacteria ratio. Other ways that we can improve that ratio, inputs that are rich in long chain carbohydrates, which of course is fungal food, include things like humic acid and kelp. Fungal dominated composts like those created with the Johnson Sioux bioreactor have also got a really important role to play. We're actually currently researching a smoke condensate, which is a byproduct of biochar manufacture. And that seems to be a really, really powerful biostimulant that really moves that key fungal to bacteria ratio in the right direction. So there's a few options out there. 
Now, earthworms produce humus four times more rapidly than any other form of decomposition. And as we mentioned, humus is the moisture sponge. So how do you bring your earthworms back? Well, there are several things. Liquid fish, molasses, a combination of the two. Earthworms love it. Protozoa tea, I've talked about it before, about how easy it is to brew loosened hay for two days with some fish and molasses to create a protozoa tea. So it's a two-day aerated process to create a tank full of protozoa. And what I'm also suggesting is that send that workforce off with a lunchbox and try 10 litres of fish with 10 litres of molasses with, say, 50 to 100 litres per hectare of your protozoa tea. Now, these are more intensive horticulture rates. You might use less in a broadacre scenario. Let's talk now about countering saline irrigation water. Pretty important issue. The problem of saline irrigation water is becoming a huge issue in most regions. The plants and soil life become dehydrated from the salts and soil structure deteriorates. Now, if the sodium component accumulates, which can be part of that salinity issue, then you know you can have even bigger problems. Now, there is actually a difference between saline soils and sodic soils. So salinity refers to total salts. So it's about relative levels of calcium, magnesium, potassium. Sodium's in there. So calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium and chloride are the salts that together are considered to be salinity. Sometimes the soil will appear to be in quite good condition, but you might notice a white crust and plants will suffer in saline conditions because the excess salt impacts osmotic potential and soil moisture is sort of held in the soil rather than being absorbed by the plants. So that becomes a real problem in dry conditions. But sodic soils actually just have excess amounts of sodium on the clay particles in the soil. And so as a result, the soil structure degrades and permeability is seriously reduced. You might notice puddling, dark-coloured soil, crust on the surface, and in addition to poor soil quality and drainage, the sodium in the soil will actually start competing with calcium, potassium and magnesium and usually generate nutritional deficiencies in your crop. So I think it's important that we look at a few strategies that might help counter this excess. So what do they include? Well, number one, several studies have demonstrated that foliar potassium silicate can actually block the transport of sodium ions into the plant. You might have heard of potassium silicate, sometimes called water glass. It's the water-soluble version of silica. It has a significant percentage of potassium in there, and that potassium content can also help a little to counter the sodium-based antagonism uh, on potassium uptake. So high sodium antagonizes potassium, and that little bit of potassium in the potassium silica might help. Silica has also been shown to activate certain physiological processes to ameliorate the effect of salinity. So that includes a strengthening of antioxidant machinery to counteract the oxidative stress that's induced by salinity. So let's talk about some practical usages of potassium silicate. It can be successfully used with as little as 400 mils per 100 litres in broadacre, and at rates as low as 100 mils per 100 litres on crops with higher water rates. Now, I use 1,500 litres of water per hectare on my established fruit crops with a blow mister, and I use about 2 litres of potassium silicate in that instance. I'm not using it, in my instance, to manage salinity. I'm using it to increase uptake of minerals like potassium, calcium and phosphorus, which it can do, and it also boosts BRICS levels. 
You can check out a relevant 2013 study by Al Hedek, E-L-H-E-D-E-K, et al., so and his colleagues, to see some of the benefits of foliar spray potassium silicate relative to salinity. I also use foliar potassium silicate to increase cell strength and to boost plant immunity, and anything that boosts immunity boosts yield, so it's quite a nice package. So the second thing that has been researched to counter salinity, humic acid's been shown to increase resistance to salinity stress both as a foliar and in the soil. So again, in a broad acre scenario, it can be applied as a seed treatment, which is insanely inexpensive. It can also be liquid injected, and it reduces sodium in the leaf very effectively when foliar applied. So all of those things have been researched. So check out, for example, a 2018 study by C. Kaya, so it's C.K-A-Y-A et al, C-K-A-Y-A et al, to look at the potential of humic acid for counteracting salinity. So how much is involved? In a broadacre scenario, I'd be looking at 10 litres of do-it-yourself humic acid. That's where you take one kilo of soluble granules, add to 10 litres of water. That's called do-it-yourself humic acid. 10 litres of that per hectare. That's about $3 worth as a liquid inject, and much less than that as a foliar. Three litres per hectare is about a dollar, maybe slightly more, per hectare as a foliar. On the orchard, I put out 20 litres of DIY humic acid, and I foliar spray 10 litres per hectare, just to give you an idea. Humic acid, of course, offers many other benefits beyond salinity management, and that includes things like increased uptake of minerals. It's a natural collating agent. It's quite a powerful root stimulant. And of course, it offers much needed enhancement of beneficial fungi. Now, number three, we're going to look at seaweed relative to this management of salinity. So a kelp study published this year, 2021 in April, was conducted by five researchers, including someone called Aladi Galal Altanahi from the University of Queensland. So there were other people from other countries involved, but this person from the University of Queensland was also involved. And that study demonstrated that seed treatment with kelp significantly improved salinity tolerance. Similarly, foliar kelp, which has long been used as kind of a rescue remedy to counter abiotic stress, and well, salinity is part of that. So when people have looked into how and why that's working, several studies have linked the cytokinins and gibberellins found in high quantities in kelp are found to help reduce salinity stress. But it's also thought that there's some other secondary metabolites that might also be involved. And finally, triacontinol, one of my favourites, triacontinol has been shown to seriously reduce salinity stress. So here's a good paper. In a recent paper called The Role of Triacontinol in Counteracting the Ill Effects of Salinity in Plants, a review, a group of Middle Eastern researchers, including Islam, Zaid and Muhammad, chronicled the multiple benefits of this natural substance. And that included quite comprehensive alleviation of salinity while also doing things like boosting plant growth, resilience and productivity. As I've mentioned, tricontinol is one of my absolute favourites. You're only using two tablespoons, 30 mils per hectare, and you can boost every aspect the photosynthesis with some wonderful results. If you've not tried tricontinol, that's the take-home message. Please give it a try. I don't actually know of anything else that can deliver that much response for that little. It's 2 or $3 a hectare, literally. Now, as always, I'm going to give you a recipe. Here's my salinity recipe, and it's just $10 per hectare. 
supercostopate to broad acaricipe to help counter salinity. So 400 mils of potassium silicate with 3 litres of DIY humic acid, 100 grams of tricalp soluble seaweed powder and 30 mils of Nutristim tricontinol. That's per hectare in 100 litres of water. 400 mils of potassium silicate from NTS, of course, 3 litres of DIY humic acid, 100 grams of tricalp, soluble seaweed powder, 30 mils of Nutristim tricontinol in 100 litres per hectare. And that mix can offer multi-purpose salinity relief and some other benefits for, as I said, under $10 per hectare, in Australia, that is. Okay, so let's move on. I'd like to discuss some really important Australian contributions to improved water management through landscape management and a greater understanding of water dynamics. Now, one of our local heroes is a farmer by a philosopher called Peter Andrews from New South Wales. Now, Peter, it's in his 80s, is responsible for a water management approach called Natural Sequence Farming. He's also the author of an excellent book called Back from the Brink. Now, Peter spent a great deal of his early years with local Aboriginals, from whom he learned the precious skill of reading the landscape. Peter intensely researched the history of this ancient land and soon realised that we were not always this dry brown continent with patches of coastal fertility. Much of this country was actually dramatically more fertile and much more productive when managed for over 60,000 years by Aboriginal people. Books that I seriously recommend, like Dark Emu, by Dr. Bruce Pascoe, chronicle this flourishing agriculture, which was so intentionally denied by the colonisers, it was much better to label the original people as hunter-gatherers, as this is considered kind of a rung down on the evolutionary ladder, and somehow that could justify the wide-scale persecution that we subsequently saw. Anyway, Peter recognised that we'd often inadvertently adopted a water management approach based on drainage rather than hydration. See, water rushes through the landscape and while irrigators harvest what they are allowed to, a great deal of that water ends up in the ocean and Peter realised that we need to slow down this water and establish strategies that ensure that it can slow down enough to hydrate the floodplains. The natural landscape design that facilitated this water use efficiently for countless centuries actually involved ponds that are naturally formed the length of the river through the valley by debris, rocks and logs. And that partially entrapped water diffuses across the landscape and forms swamp meadows and reed beds and lower lying areas. And immediately beneath the soil surface is also a freshwater lens that helps counter the negative impact of natural salinity while sustaining flourishing vegetation and wildlife. See, what is the basis of everything, including biodiversity? And of course, that's the central principle of nature and all of that's moisture dependent. Now, you might say, yeah, but the Garden of Eden's long gone, mate. We straightened the rivers, we removed much of the vegetation and reclaimed those swamps that the early invaders so often derided. Salinity is the major issue and our drought-sensitive landscapes now here to stay. Well, Peter has dramatically demonstrated that this need not be the case. I strongly recommend that you investigate natural sequence farming wherever you are in the world. The centrepiece of what is actually a comprehensive regenerative approach is the creation of leaky weirs along the river traversing the valley floor to slow down the water for long enough 
for the flood plain to be hydrated. So you use excavators and so forth to create that effect. Reed beds are recreated associated with these oasis type scenarios along with other vegetation that slows and cleanses the water. It's actually something quite wonderful to behold if you visit one of these farms. I've got indelible images of Tony Coote's property, Maloon Creek Natural Farms. In the height of a seven-year drought, his valley property landscaped by Peter was such an example of the potential of this common sense reclamation. I mean, standing on a hillside during this extended drought, you could see the stark aridity of neighbouring properties compared to this obvious ongoing really quite lush fertility at Maloon Creek Farms. It was a great example of the potential. So natural sequence farming is well suited to both cell grazing and cropping scenarios. There are multiple components, as I said, to this low input approach, including perhaps a new appreciation of the carbon building potential of the unwanted plants we often call weeds. Peter sees these plants as pioneering species that are often signposts of deficiencies, which of course is completely accurate. These much maligned plants are often designed to access missing minerals and when you slash them back into the soil so that, that's, of course, the seed doesn't spread, you're actually increasing soil fertility with the minerals that they've mined to sponsor subsequent generations of grasses and herbs that will then offer a much more palatable sustenance for grazing animals. In the face of massive climate change challenges where the IPCC have predicted longer, more severe droughts, it seems like a no-brainer that we start embracing natural solutions to counter that likely outcome. Peter's life work involves techniques based on ecological principles, low input requirements and natural cycling of water and nutrients to make the land more drought resilient and more productive. It's, it's probably the right system at the right time and we all need to take a look at it. Another major Australian contribution to sustainable water management came from P.A. Yeomans. Now, many of you might be familiar with the Yeomans plough, but you may not be quite so cognizant of its intended purpose. This popular tool was not just designed as a deep ripper to help open up tight soils and give you more moisture, nutrients and, of course, all-important oxygen. P.A. Yeomans shared Peter's conviction that we were losing way too much of the rainfall that fell on our farms. He reasoned that as water tended to flow along the contours, his deep rip and plough could trace those contours to improve that flow. So that kind of assisted water flow could then be strategically managed. He directed that water along the deep ripped contours to a series of well-positioned water holes from which it could be then equitably distributed across the farm. Now, this type of contour farming was actually national policy in Australia for 16 years, beginning in the 1950s, and we didn't stop that support because it didn't work. It was just one of those political changes. So if it was important in the 50s, how important is it at this stage? I mean, I was watching a 15-minute black-and-white video film of hundreds of farmers attending a field day on the farm that was the basis of Yeoman's iconic book called Water for Every Farm. Wonderful photos of this magical property. The farmers wandered amidst rich, lush, biodiverse pastures and extremely healthy cattle, all sustained by a network of contour-fed ponds that distributed that precious hydration across the landscape. This increased water utilisation, called key line farming, is not just limited to hilly terrain, as you might imagine. It's actually applicable, sometimes on barely perceptible slopes, to maximise moisture efficiency. So Percival Yeomans, if you wonder what PA stood for, Percival Yeomans was an inventor, he was a mining engineer with a deep understanding of hydrology, 
and of course equipment design. His keyline principles have been adopted across the globe and keyline design principles are on the curriculum of multiple sustainable agriculture courses right around the world. So a recent innovation has seen the ploughs filled with tanks of microbes and minerals that are added during that pasture innovation with Keyline Principles. I've got a close friend, his name's Matt Kilby. He runs a company called Global Land Repair and he practices this Keyline renovation with that liquid nutrition and microbes. He's actually one of our eco-warriors. He's planted millions of trees across the Australian landscape. He's one of my heroes with a company that he owned for many years called Trees for Earth. Permaculture is another Australian gift to the world and permaculture design is actually largely based upon the work of PA Yeomans. So here, instead of deep ripping on the contour, a ditch is dug along the contours and the water is directed through the landscape using these swales, as they're called. So the soil excavated from the ditch becomes the contour bank and the area immediately above the swale is the least hydrated and should be farmed accordingly. So it's the driest area immediately above the swale. The swale bank is the most fertile zone because it has the most moisture, it's most hydrated, and the high-value crops are planted on the swale bank while the area directly below the contour bank is a little less hydrate, so it has the next highest dollar-value crops until you get down to the next swale. So it gets drier and drier until you get to the next swale. Permaculture design, as I said, essentially involves a modified form of yeoman's keyline design but I sometimes feel that Percival kind of misses out on some of the credit for his contributions to, to permaculture, which is actually one of Australia's most significant intellectual exports. There are permaculture institutes on every corner of the globe. Okay, it's that time of the podcast for some humour to get some oxygen flowing in our, in our veins following this huge influx of information. Just conventional jokes this time. I've run out of farming jokes for this month, but here's the first of them. Late one night, a burglar broke into a house, and while he was sneaking round in the dark, he heard a voice say, Jesus is watching you. He looked around and saw nothing, so kept on creeping. And then again he heard, Jesus is watching you. In a dark corner, he suddenly saw a cage with a parrot in it. And so he asked, was it you who said, Jesus is watching me? And the parrot said, yes, it was. And relieved, the burglar asks, and what is your name? And the parrot says, Clarence. And the burglar said, what a stupid name for a parrot. What idiot called you Clarence? And the parrot answered, I guess it was the same idiot that called the rottweiler Jesus. <laughs> Burglar's got a bit of a, a rough awakening coming. So here we've got a little bit of hospital humour, a little gallows humour, I guess you could say. A woman receives a call from the hospital and was informed that her husband's been in a terrible accident and that she needed to come to the hospital immediately. The woman sped all the way to the hospital and ran inside and frantically said, my husband has been in a terrible accident and I was told to come right away. And the receptionist says, oh yes, you must be Mrs Johnson. Please have a seat and I'll let the doctor know that you're here. A minute later, the doctor comes out, takes the frantic woman into a little side room and shuts the door. And then the doctor says, have a seat, Mrs Johnson. I'm afraid I have some bad news, but I also have some good news. So which do you want first? Mrs Johnson said, well, just go ahead and give me the bad news first. So the doctor starts to explain. Well, Mrs Johnson, I'm sorry to tell you this, but your husband was hit by a bus while crossing the road. 
and I'm afraid he's paralysed from the neck down. The woman is absolutely horrified and she says, oh my goodness, this is, this is terrible, this is horrible. W- what will it mean for us? Well, I'm afraid the news only gets worse, the doctor explains. Eventually, when your husband comes home from the hospital, I'm sorry to tell you, he's going to need constant around-the-clock care. You'll have to do everything for him from that moment on. You'll have a machine that breathes through him, but you'll have to do all of the rest yourself. You'll have to feed him through a feeding tube. You'll have to bathe him, dress him, and I'm sorry to say that he'll be in adult diapers. So for the remainder of his life, you're going to have to clean up, and it can get a bit messy, and that's several times a day. And since he's quite a young man, this is probably going to be your life for several more decades. Oh, 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 oh my goodness. Tell me, Doctor, will, will I ever be able to be intimate with my husband again, she said. I'm afraid not, Mrs. Johnson. That part of your life is over forever. I'm afraid to say sex will never be possible again. But, but this, is just, this, is, this is just the worst news I've ever heard. But, but you said there was some good news. What's the good news, Doctor? Please, please tell me the good news. Okay, the doctor said. The good news is, I was just joking, he actually died on impact. <laughs> That's one way to, to soften some bad news, I guess. Uh, just along those lines, there's one more uh, little, uh, little, little touch of humour. Okay, you try to do the right thing. I tried donating blood today, but never again. I just hate dealing with those bureaucrats. So many stupid questions. Whose blood is it? Where did you get it from? Why is it in that bucket? Okay, folks, that's the jokes for this week. In the human health segment this month, we will once again look at how we can boost our health, happiness and longevity. But this time around, the focus will be all about happiness, specifically in the form of stress reduction. Now, the opposite of happiness is stress and anxiety. In fact, there's also a really powerful link between anxiety and the dreaded black dog. We're living in the most stressful time in history. Nonsense, I hear you say. What about the Black Death, the Spanish flu? What about the two world wars? Well, I'd argue that this is actually worse because social media, news saturation, information accessibility together are are determining a kind of negative drenching that's unlike anything that ever came before. I listened to the ABC this morning and the words pandemic, COVID, vaccination, Delta and lockdown were used over a hundred times in a five-minute segment. This has been the ceaseless story for 18 months, along with fires, floods, famine and political upheaval. We were never previously forced to constantly confront calamities in this manner and it takes its toll. So in this segment... I'm going to share some simple strategies to help you reduce stress. This will include some physical tools and some psychological perspectives that might help fuel a reset. Perhaps a good starting point is to not turn on the news each morning. Similarly, you might want to avoid the confusion that comes from every rabid expert seeking their five minutes of Facebook fame. I could never have imagined the scale of the conspiracy theories that have now become an integral part of the lives of so many. Just stop it. That's my message. Stop it. It's not that hard to do. Now, one of the single most researched 
stress-busting strategies as accessible to all of us and it's free of charge. I'm talking about a relaxation tool successfully utilised by over 2 billion of the world's population, some say 3 billion. Now when I highlight the multiple benefits of meditation, I don't want you to picture tree-hugging hippies chanting their Indian mantras because that's not a requirement of meditation. Meditation is simply breath focus. It turns out that you can't multitask when you're focusing on your breath and consequently you shut out the barrage of 50,000 thoughts that flood up from your subconscious mind on a daily basis. Breath focus effectively creates a kind of roundabout that slows the barrage and enables you an opportunity to feel at one with everything around you. It brings you back into the moment and it turns out that's a pretty important place to be. So let's quickly summarise some of the large body of research highlighting the regenerative power of meditation. Meditation is about much more than just spiritual practice that can help reclaim your link perhaps to nature and God. It has proven immeasurable physical benefits that are in themselves truly remarkable. If you're sceptical, then perhaps you should check your pulse, check your blood pressure or your physical sense of well-being before and after each session, I'm pretty sure you'll soon become a convert. Research has demonstrated that meditation can normalise blood pressure. Well, that's one in three of us with high blood pressure. It can decrease muscle tension and headaches. Well, you'll know if that's happening. It can elevate mood through a measurable increase in serotonin. Now, depression, obesity and insomnia are all related to low serotonin levels. Meditation enhances immunity through boosted production of natural killer T-cells. Now that strikes me as a pretty welcome outcome when COVID is specifically killing the immune compromised. It's also been shown to reduce PMT. Wait a minute, why are so many men racing to the phone to book their wives into a meditation class? I'll just wait for a minute until you return, just joking. Meditation also relieves emotional distress and anxiety attacks. Now, Anxiety attacks seem to be almost a, a kind of rite of passage these days for 20 to 30-year-olds, and oh, that wasn't the case in my youth, so there's a change happening. This simple breath focus has also been shown to speed recovery from virus pathogens. Hmm, that sounds like it might be a bit relevant. And meditation also builds self-confidence. It promotes deep relaxation, and it improves circulation and slows the heart rate. That's a pretty impressive package when it costs nothing more than 10 to 15 minutes of your time each day. So let's look at the mechanics of this thing. The first thing to understand is the importance of abdominal breathing. I want you to put one hand on your chest and one hand on your stomach and see what hand moves most as you breathe. There are several important physical reasons why we should be deep breathing via the abdomen. The associated contraction of the diaphragm muscles causes the abdomen to expand, creating negative pressure in the chest, which forces air into the lungs. You've also got a row of lymph glands running from your belly button to the middle of your chest. So abdominal breathing pumps these glands and improves your lymph flow. Now that's pretty important for a, a kind of critical cleansing system that doesn't have a pump like our heart for our blood, for example. Lymphatic congestion is actually linked to multiple health issues. Blood flow is also increased with gut breathing, and together this kind of improvement boosts disease resistance and athletic ability. However, most importantly, in our stress-laden world, this type of breathing stimulates the relaxation response. 
Okay, so here's a simple meditative technique that originally comes from the Tibetan culture. The skeptics amongst you can simply try out the three-minute cycle of this and you'll see if you feel any different. And I'm saying you're probably going to feel like you just had a little shot of Valium. Now, this is a really good tool for insomniacs and it might even prove of help when you open your next bank statement or almost tip the tractor. You can sit on a hay bale in the paddock to try this, but it's probably not a good idea to try it while you're driving. This technique is called 477 breathing, and here's how you do it. So you empty every last bit of air from your lungs, and then you take in a deep breath that lasts four seconds, and that completely fills your lungs. And then you hold that breath for seven seconds, and next you breathe out, through your mouth, so you're breathing in through your nose, breathing out through your mouth with your tongue placed behind your front teeth. Now, that out-breath should last a full seven seconds, so you're exhaling every last gasp from your lungs. Now, that's one cycle, so next you breathe in through your nose again for four seconds, and so it goes. So, let's just try it. Empty our lungs. Breathe in for four seconds. Hold that breath for seven seconds. Breathe out with your tongue placed behind your front teeth. For a full seven seconds. Now that's one cycle, as I said. Breathe in through your nose for four seconds, and so it goes. It's really important that you always complete seven of these breath cycles because that's considered a single unit. Sometimes if you're really stressed, it might take several of these seven cycle units to reclaim your relaxation. Now, in my case, I'm an insomniac, and I find this really, really helpful to get in a cruising mode to fall back asleep. Now, there's a tremendous book I think you'd all love. It's published by Penguin. It's authored by a journalist called James Nestor, and it's called Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art. It's also available as an audio book, so you can listen while you're in the ute or on the tractor if you choose. Now, there's nothing more essential for our health and well-being than breathing correctly, and yet the vast majority of us have lost that ability. So James travels the world and looks at what works best. He determines the most productive breathing strategies, and his findings have proven to be a game-changer for many. One of the simplest but most productive strategies in the art of breathing, involves something called resonant or coherent breathing. There is no more essential technique and none more basic. Pretty simple, sit up straight, relax the shoulders and belly and exhale. Now inhale softly for 5.5 seconds. Expanding the belly as air fills the bottom of the lungs and without pausing, exhale softly for 5.5 seconds. Bringing the belly in as the lungs empty. Now, each breath should feel sort of like a circle. So 5.5 seconds breathing deeply into the belly and 5.5 seconds breathing out. And you repeat that at least 10 times. And again, you'll feel a very, very strong relaxation response. So for this little segment, let's just talk for a moment about supplements for stress. Now, the other physical essential, we're talking still the physical side of the story, is to ensure that you've got enough magnesium and vitamin B6 because they're the nutrients most depleted by anxiety. 
Now, unfortunately, it can be a kind of downward spiral if we don't understand these particular stresses because as our levels of those nutrients drop, so our anxiety increases. So we suck more magnesium and more B6 until there sometimes can be a pretty grim price to pay for that neglect. So last episode, remember, we spoke about the value of Epsom salts baths or the use of transdermal magnesium like my Maxorb product. But what's the story with B6? Well, you need to supplement with 100 milligrams of B6 each day, but that must always be done in conjunction with a B-group supplement. So two pills are involved here. B vitamins work best in conjunction with their full family, and hence the need to take the B-group always with the B6. That practice has got some added benefits because several other B vitamins are also related to stress reduction. Okay, so we've talked about physical strategies and let's move on now to talk about the power of perspective in a more philosophical or perhaps psychological segment that I've called Change Your Perspective, Change Your Outcome. And here we're going to look at 13 tips that might help you to stamp out your stresses. The first of those is to abandon expectations. Now here is why and how this works. When you reach the end of your life, there's often a kind of profound clarity, assuming you're not zonked out on morphine, of course. And at that point, you often realise that the measure of a successful life is how much peace and happiness did you enjoy on that short journey. There's also often a recognition that those two elusive states are rarely achieved with material possessions. No one on their deathbed ever said, I wish I'd bought more stuff. Now, if you acknowledge the supreme importance of peace and happiness, then perhaps you might also acknowledge your extreme vulnerability relative to expectations. In fact, if there's an expectation behind a thought or belief, you are absurdly vulnerable. You've effectively lost control of your own happiness because you can only be happy if someone lives up to your expectations. They control your likelihood of happiness and often within relationships that unintentional controller may not even be aware of the expectations he or she has failed to meet. Now Australia has a very high rate of marriage failure and if you ask someone why their marriage broke down, a common response is, oh she didn't make me happy. Oh my goodness, that's the biggest expectation of them all. If you've yet to realise that you are the only person who can make you happy, please don't enter another relationship that's doomed to fail. The key here is to look into that flood of thoughts and to identify how many times you're using the words should or shouldn't. He shouldn't have acted that way. She shouldn't have said that or I should have behaved differently. You'll be amazed how many times those words appear in your traffic jam of thoughts. So the strategy here is to weed out those two words and strive to permanently remove them because if you can abandon expectations, life changes. It's pretty important because you've basically reclaimed responsibility for your own happiness. So that's number one. Number two, be grateful. Gratitude is a universal law. We were supposed to say thank you before a meal or at the end of the day. I just love it in South Africa when my farmer friends and their families clasp hands before enjoying food. Now, Saying grace doesn't have to be a religious thing. If that's not how you feel, it can simply be thank you for the people who produce this food. Thank you for the immeasurable contribution of soil life. 
I'm not saying, thank you for the fact that I'm here with these people, these wonderful people, to share this food. Now, often in my presentations, women just kind of nod their heads because many of these things I'll discuss are simply intuitive, but men often want a logical explanation. Well, here's your logic. Gratitude and happiness are inextricably intertwined. I want you to think of a genuinely happy person you know, if you know one, are they grateful? Of course they are. Gratitude and abundance are powerfully linked. There are simply very few happy, ungrateful people. Number three is to practice forgiveness. Now there's a, a vibrant new science called psychoneuroimmunology, which is all about the power of mind-body medicine. It's a recognition of how emotions can so seriously impact our health. There have been some major findings here, including the fact that we've now identified the most destructive of human emotions. It's guilt. The Catholics got it right. Three Hail Marys and the job's done. I'm not being facetious. It turned out to be the perfect relief valve. The second most destructive emotion is bitterness. And that's when we start talking about the importance of forgiveness. If you can't forgive, you'll be bitter. And that emotion may well kill you. A professor in psychoneuroimmunology who spoke at one of my health conferences suggested that there's a profound link between cancer and bitterness. He suggested he'd never met a cancer patient who didn't have some issue with bitterness. And that's why everyone who was ever tuned into a greater understanding, and that includes Jesus, it includes Buddha and Muhammad, they all insisted that we must forgive everyone for everything, including ourselves. So don't pollute a new day with yesterday. And remember that forgiveness is for the forgiver. Don't think you're lucky I forgave you because that's not how it works. Number four in our list of 13 is understanding abundance. Now here we're talking about the law of give and you will receive. Outflow effectively determines inflow. You can't receive what you don't give. I mean, sometimes in life you wait until you retire and then you might have time to volunteer for the first time and then you find yourself flooded often with a very unfamiliar feeling. It's a sense of peace and harmony that comes from giving. See, if you believe in shortages and hold on too tightly, your life is invariably dominated by scarcity. Scarcity and abundance are inner states that can literally manifest as your reality. We're going to talk about this a little more shortly. Number five is becoming an observer. Now, we're born with a blank slate. And the first seven years are when our guiding programs are effectively installed. Faulty programming is pretty much a rite of passage. It's a pretty hard role to be a perfect parent. And then the journey of life often involves the identification of that faulty program and its removal. Many of the thoughts that well up from our subconscious are based on those programs and we need to identify what's working for us and remove what is not. Often the problem relates to living a life based on others' expectations when your goal is to live your own one life. That's why the greatest writers and philosophers expressed in various forms the concept that a life unobserved is a life not worth living. You need to shine a light on the many thoughts that are negative and banish them. Unexamined thoughts can destroy your potential for peace. Number six, be non-judgmental. This is important because you can so easily become the architect of your own demise. 
If you judge something as bad, it will become increasingly negative. Number seven, drop the blame game. So just like your farm, your life is an energy system. Your inputs, including your love, will determine how that system functions. If your life is stagnant, you need to consider your input. Stop being the victim. If nothing's happening in your life, it's quite often your fault. Now, this concept is strongly linked to relationship breakdown. Here's how it works. Often, one partner cheats or lies, and an all-important trust is destroyed, and the hurt person withdraws and pulls back their love and their trust and their communication. And the perpetrator invariably thinks, bugger you, and they do the same. And this vicious cycle continues until we have an energy system with no inputs, and it can do nothing but crash and burn. I guess it's really part of the given you shall receive concept intertwined with the concept of forgiveness. Returning to the farm parallel, there's no doubt that intention can play a large role. The power of love can be as potent in the paddock as it is in the home. And you think, what's she talking about here? I always recall the highly successful Canadian agronomist whom has growers lining up to become his clients. He's achieved remarkable yield increases in broadacre that drive that strong demand for his services. He's got stringent requirements for accepting any new clients, but one of those involves the commitment that you go out into the paddock and you give your crop some love at least once a week. You walk out and you stroke the leaves and you say, you guys are looking so good. Do I have some foliar treats for you this week? And then the plants squirm in appreciation with their little leaves waggling. <laughs> no, serious, let me explain how this might be working. Bruce Lipton the American cell biologist is a friend of mine. In fact, we both had shares in a community farm north of Auckland a few years back. Bruce is a really dynamic presenter and he's authored several best-selling books. Now, one of those is called The Biology of Belief and his findings here may help explain this scenario. So Bruce is a talented cell biologist who questioned the Watson and Crick driven dogma that we are kind of victims of our genetic inheritance. It's called genetic determinism. So he decided to investigate just how much of cellular activity was actually controlled by the genes. And in the process, he became a leading player in the exciting new field of epigenetics. Bruce took a bunch of cells that were kept alive in a supportive solution and removed their genes, which of course you can if you're a cell biologist. Theoretically, the cells should have died shortly thereafter. But this was not the case. A week later, they were still alive. A month later, two months later, they were still functioning. In fact, they inexplicably survived for nine weeks. So Bruce decided to investigate this phenomenon. He discovered that the cell membrane was the message centre controlling much of cell function. On that membrane, he found a set of receptors that responded to biochemicals in the food we eat. It was kind of seen as further evidence of the truth of the cliché, we are what we eat. And then he found a secondary set of receptors that respond to our thoughts and emotions, which of course is further evidence of the validity of the mind-body medicine concept of psychoneuroimmunology. Then Bruce struck gold. He identified one receptor that responded to a single emotion, and that receptor had the biggest impact upon cellular health of all. Guess what that emotion was? Yes, it was love. We now have scientific proof that love is the single most important thing on the planet. So John Lennon got it right. Love is all you need, perhaps. So 
if a cell is a cell is a cell, if dogs respond so dramatically to affection, why not a plant? They're both communities of cell that respond to love, we now know. It's a bit of a paradigm crusher, I know, to wrap your head around this, but it certainly can help explain the idea of people with green thumbs. These people pour out their love while planting and tending their garden, and that Canadian agronomist I mentioned is simply proving that the same principle may apply in broadacre farming. Interesting, isn't it? Number eight is to see the beauty. This involves training yourself to always look for the best in everything. It's pretty easy to see fault, but even the person you like least, even that asshole that annoys the hell out of you, always has some redeeming features. And that's what we need to try and focus upon. It involves the important practice of what's called unconditional acceptance. When you strive to make this positive change, you eventually begin to see more beauty in yourself. It's eminently true to say you must love yourself before you can love another. And herein lies a major problem. The fact is that many of us don't even like ourselves. Often, that early faulty programming that I mentioned has inculcated some kind of guilt and fear and loathing, and that's damaged our sense of self-worth. If we can use these kind of strategies to reclaim that self-love, it can be a wonderful outcome for ourselves and those around us. Often our better poets can kind of nail it. John Keats, for example, expressed it really well when he said, beauty is truth, truth is beauty, that's all you know on earth and all you need to know. Number nine is to create purpose in life. Now here's how I personally view the journey of life. I believe we're here to learn lessons in the world as our teacher. Life is a kind of learning continuum and that's what accumulated wisdom is based upon. If you close your mind with ego, doctrine and dogma, then we simply repeat the lesson until we finally make the change and grow. Think of the marriage statistics. Almost 40% of the first marriages end in divorce. Theoretically, we should be learning our lesson but 60% of second marriages end the same way. Surely it's third time lucky. No, 80% of third marriages end in divorce. We're obviously not learning the lesson of forgiveness, self-love, unconditional acceptance and dropping the blame game. If we acknowledge the fact that peace and happiness are our primary yardsticks for a successful life, then which of the following understandings has the most chance of success? Incidentally, this little group of ideas was lifted from Andrew Matthews' great little book called Follow Your Heart. So, which of these three understandings has the most chance of helping you achieve happiness? Number one, my life is a series of lessons I need unfolding in perfect order. Number two, life's a lottery, but I'll make the most of whatever comes along. And number three, why do bad things always happen to me? Which of these three options is most likely to maximise peace of mind? Of course, it's the first option, involving non-resistance and unconditional acceptance. Option three, that why do bad things always happen to me, pretty much guarantees maximum misery. It's your choice. Miserable bastards lead miserable lives. In this instance, there's now some evidence that you don't even necessarily need to deeply believe that things happen for a reason. You can fake it like an orgasm. Not that many men can relate to that concept. <laughs> you can act as if every event has a purpose and your life will have a purpose. Number 10 is to recognise the power of thinking positively. 
there's now a significant body of research surrounding positive outcomes by adopting a positive perspective. It's really what the best-selling book, The Secret, is based upon. We create our own reality. I want you to think about truly negative people you know. Do negative things happen to them? Yes, all the time. The poor souls have yet to recognise that they themselves created that misery. Negative simply attracts negative. Conversely, we now understand the transformative power of positive thinking. It's not a new concept. Seven decades back, Henry Ford said, whether you think you can or think you can't, you're right. It's now understood that the key for change is to determine which conscious thoughts become part of your subconscious program, make that program positive, and it's inevitable that your life will become more positive. But just like farm regeneration, this might require some patience. It takes disciplined thinking and time, usually between four to six months, the research shows us, to effect positive change. You can't just try being positive for a day and then say, this is a bloody waste of time, I tried it for a day. As with all things, persistence produces rewards. Number 11 is to live in the moment. Once again, this is not a new concept. Philosophers like Eckhart Tolle in books like The Power of Now and A New Earth have extolled the virtues of this approach. But 2,300 years ago, the wonderful Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu said, if you're living in the past, you'll be depressed. If you're living in the future, you'll be anxious. Your only chance of peace and happiness is to live in the moment. It's amazing stuff 2,300 years ago. This is quite simply the only field upon which the game of life happens. There's no point in hating your job, for example, while thinking, I'll retire in 15 years and then I'll be happy because you probably won't be. You wasted your life. If you're not excited and passionate about farming, for example, then do something else. Sell the farm. Life's too short for constant compromise and you don't want your last days to be dogged by regrets. Living in the moment involves genuinely listening and empathising with your partner, your family or your friends. Listen to the birds. Breathe deeply. Smell your surroundings while enjoying the sunlight on your skin. We live in such uncertain times. It's more important now than ever to live and enjoy each day as if it was your last. Number 12 is to create stillness. Now, the essence of living in the moment involves being at one with the world around you. And often this involves silencing the constant chatter of 50,000 thoughts per day. I think I, I probably have 100,000 thoughts each, each hour. This is where breath focus becomes so important because you can't focus on anything else but your breath. That's how it works. And that provides effectively a roundabout to slow down that crazy traffic flow. Now, a habit involves a measurable physical groove in your brain. And that's why it's so hard to beat a bad habit. You have to somehow erase a physical structure. However, you can create a new, more desirable habit, and it takes about a month if you persist. In this case, there's a really simple trick you can use. Set your mobile phone to beep every hour, and that will be your reminder. So every hour, you simply slow down for a minute or two and take three deep abdominal breaths. So that's the roundabout in that frantic traffic flow. Now you do this 16 times a day, that's for 16 hours you're awake, and you do that for 30 days. Just try it, it's not a big deal, it's not taking a lot of your time. But what you've done at the end of 30 days, you've effectively created a new habit. Your body will now begin to do this automatically, and you're going to feel the associated sense of peace, calm, 
and oneness with your surrounds. So give it a try and let me know how you go. Number 13, to conclude, is about non-resistance. So this last of our lessons is about reducing stress by going with the flow. So the great Indian philosopher Krishnamurti saved his best until last. He walked onto stage to address a crowd of thousands and announced that this was the last time he would speak in public and that he would share the secret of peace and happiness in just five words. He said those five words slowly and then he left the stage and he died shortly after. These five words were, I don't mind what happens. Now some of the crowd who had followed him for decades, awaiting this great revelation, initially thought, what kind of crap was that? And then they realised how profound that simple statement was. This message basically embodies several of the concepts I've just been talking about. It relates to unconditional acceptance and a sense of purpose that includes the idea that everything happens for a reason. What has happened happened, and there's no point in regret and bitterness. If we go with the flow we'll inevitably reach a point in the future where we say, oh, that's why that happened. The alternative is often struggle, strife and bitterness. And here we tend to create our own negative outcome, as we talked about. Okay, so that's our health segment for this month. So I've got to admit, it's been really fun for me to present this on a podcast because when I discuss these kind of ideas live, often there's a lot of tears flowing around the room as people recognise truths. And Sometimes I even struggle to contain my own. I I think maybe I've got a little bit of post-traumatic stress from my daughter's accident, so I tend to fight back tears much more frequently these days. Anyway, that's human health for this month. Now I want to briefly touch upon the concept of living water versus dead irrigation water. Now Victor Schauberger, fascinating character, often called the water wizard, He was able to describe that water in a meandering river with the cooling effect of overhanging trees was a very, very different animal to stagnant water from a dam. He contended that the whirling eddies in the river created spiralling vortexes, and as the vortex is the path of least resistance, it enabled both heightened oxygenation and it introduced the effect of atmospheric energy that surrounds us. Now, this isn't some weird, eerie theory thing. It's basically the energy that Aristotle called ether, the Easterners called life force, and the quantum physicists refer to it as scalar energy. There is no argument that we live in a sea of energy. And the vortex is the path of least resistance to introduce that energy. So that water energizing effect is utilized within biodynamic agriculture with a process called reverse stirring. So there you're trying to mimic what's happening with that vortex in a natural meandering river with those little whirling eddies. This used to be done by hand, this reverse steering, and now, so you create a vortex and then you break it up and then you create a reverse vortex, and now there's a machine that creates that effect, creates a vortex, then stops and reverses that vortex. Now, another strategy to create this energising effect and also used in biodynamics is the use of something called a flow form. So this biomimicry device was developed by someone called John Wilkes who unfortunately uh, left us in 2011. It involved a very precise geometric design where water moves down through a series of bowls in which vortices are created before it moves to the next bowl and so forth. So this spiraling waterfall structure is commonly used to activate biodynamic preparations 
but you need to know that it can be used to increase the performance of any liquid fertilizer, including compost teas or trace minerals. Or I've actually seen the use of flow forms to activate things that are quite contrary to the rigid kind of BD principles. For example, you know, I don't, I don't like these rigid kind of ideas. I see nutrition farming as a functional hybrid. If it works, if nature approves of it, you do it. So I once witnessed trials involving foliar-sprayed urea and humic acid, so liquid humic acid and urea running through a flow form, and the treated and untreated areas were undeniably different. There was really, really marked differences, so it definitely does something. Your liquid fertilizer basically is pumped in at the top of the cascade and then pumped from the tank at the base after it's run through that little spiraling waterfall series of little bowls, two or three cycles. I'd actually I'd love to have one at one of my farms, and it's on my Christmas list. There are actually now cylinder-shaped devices through which your water is pumped that mimic that vortex irrigation concept. And some of them are quite well-researched. You can go and look at their websites and there's significant research to support them. Perhaps the best known of these options is the grander water system. But much of the response of this technology relates to enhanced oxygenation. And I see this as evidence as the supreme importance of oxygen in the soil plant equation. As I've said many times, it's the single most important element for healthy soils and healthy disease-free crops. So that leads me to the exciting new South African technology I described in the introduction. Let's talk about agri-water. Let's introduce the rainmaker. So Rian Kirsten is a practical, passionate pioneer of this technology whom confounded the sceptics and created a dynamic, fast-growing South African company that was originally called PuraCare and is now named AgriWater. For the past decade, he's painstakingly perfected this quite remarkable technology in the field and now there are many, many thousands of hectares utilising this water-enhancing system in South Africa and Rion's now primed to introduce this potential to the wider world. Now, in my 27-year journey in regenerative agriculture, I've never ever agreed to publicly support anything, anything that I hadn't personally developed, that is. I've been approached by multiple people claiming the next magic bullet, trying to enlist my support, and I don't close my eyes to anything, I check everything, just in case, but very, very few things live up to their claims, I've found. I've been following the progress of this technology for several years. I've visited of somewhere around 20 farms where it's been successfully employed and had a good look and talked to the people involved. And last season I imported a unit for my 20,000 tree apple and stone fruit farm in Queensland and I've been thoroughly impressed in every instance. So when Rian approached me to become a global ambassador for this technology, it didn't take much persuasion. I seriously believe this is a game changer to the point that it might even have planet-saving potential. So let's have a closer look at this agri-water oxygen treatment and what it might mean for your farm. The first thing I want you to consider is the response difference between irrigation and rainwater. Now, you know that an inch of rainwater always gives a much better response than an equivalent inch of irrigated water, and why is that? If that rain, of course, is part of an electrical storm, the pronounced difference relates to lightning oxidising atmospheric nitrogen and subsequently the rainwater is infused with nitrate nitrogen. However, why is there a difference without an electrical storm? Rainwater 
contains two natural oxygen sources, hydrogen peroxide, which of course is H2O2, and ozone, which is O3. In fact, you can often smell the sweet smell of ozone immediately before a rainstorm. It's these oxygen species that effectively provide that rainwater punch. So the agri-water technology involves the combination of ozone and hydrogen peroxide applied with pressure into your irrigation line. And in this manner, irrigation water acts like rainwater in your field, but like supercharged rainwater because there's actually more of those two oxygen sources involved. When these oxygen sources are combined, it actually produces something that's called peroxone. You can look, you can Google it. It's an advanced oxidation process that's typically used to cleanse a variety of contaminants from water, all sorts of things that can clean out of water, particularly organic contaminants. The fusion of these two oxygen sources creates an abundance of what are called high-energy hydroxyl radicals. It's actually a super powerful disinfectant when used at high concentrations, but that's not what the agri-water technology is about. This is a much more gentle application where we're harvesting perhaps a little of that cleansing capacity but focusing much more upon the biological power of oxygen. So for the increasing number of you who brew microbial inoculums, you'll know that the key to successful microbe multiplication is to maintain six parts per million of dissolved oxygen throughout the brewing process. Now this can be monitored with a dissolved oxygen meter during the brewing process and it's basically achieved with a huge abundance of tiny bubbles in the brewing tank. That's the key to maintaining six parts per million of dissolved oxygen. When you're using this agri-water oxygen treatment technology, you're actually applying a minimum of six parts per million in the irrigation water. In one sense, you're effectively brewing the entire soil. And if you include a little microbe food in that irrigation water, the measurable increase in microbial activity can be really quite profound. You can actually monitor the dissolved oxygen emerging from your centre pivot or drip lines by collecting it in a jar and put a dissolved oxygen metre in and see what you're achieving. So that level of oxygen is sufficient to keep irrigation lines and filters clean, and that's a big deal. Everyone that I've talked to confirms this is always the benefit, and we certainly found that to be the case on my farm where even when the last dam was down to the dregs before the three-year drought finally broke, the irrigation lines stayed clean. And that benefit can represent substantial cost savings on larger farms where substandard water drives regular, quite labour-intensive cleaning. That reminds me of one of my most spectacular farm visits when I was originally exploring this technology. I went to a centre pivot a couple of hours from Lady Grey in the Drakensberg region of South Africa. And at this spot, the irrigation water was being pumped from a dam that was also serving as kind of sewerage central for a bordering tin shack town. Every minute as you stood there, there was a big, large gloop in the settling pond as the methane escaped from the depths. And honestly, the stink was barely bearable. Now, one of the people who was with us during that visit, who had been to my course and wanted to come over a look at this technology, was a professor who specialised in waste management. And he was incredulous that how could you possibly be using this for irrigation but a few hundred meters away at the center pivot sucking from that smelly hole there was zero smell and the water was actually clear it was barely believable the water obviously still contains a huge load of nutrients because the loosen under that center pivot was absolutely flourishing and the earthworm counts were ridiculous in fact the paddock was covered in ibises they call them hardy in south africa 
And they were so fat they could barely fly. Every time they inserted that long curved beak, they harvested a worm. So let's look at some of the benefits of the agri-water system. Number one, soil compaction is reduced. Now there are two things happening here. The oxygen-stimulating soil life, particularly beneficial fungi, and you can measure that, and the associated increase in crumb structure that comes from fungi provides the biological explanation of this increased soil friability. However, the other phenomenon is equally important. That involves fast-tracking the oxidation of elemental sulphur to the sulphate form. That's a biological process, but you've stimulated and fast-tracked that process. So let me explain. The two largest physical contributors to tight, closed soils are usually excesses of magnesium and sodium. And then, of course, that tight, closed soils can compact very easily with machinery and cattle and so forth. But the creation of the sulphate from sulphur in your soil generates the formation of magnesium sulphate and sodium sulphate. And both of these minerals are highly leachable in the sulphate form. And when they're leached, the soil structure improves. That's why you use gypsum. Gypsum generates a similar effect because the sulphate breaks from the calcium, forms sodium sulphate, magnesium sulphate, and does exactly the same thing. That's why they call gypsum the clay breaker. It's really apparent that it's happening here with the agri-water system when growers are using these technologies because if we're monitoring soil tests, we watch the decline in sulphur over time according to that soil test. So eventually you're going to need to put a bit of elemental sulphur to counter those losses, but tremendous response in terms of changing soil structure. Number two, water salinity is counted. So we talked about the issues of salinity, and it's a common claim to fame for this breakthrough technology. Again, two things are happening. Salts are moved through the soil more easily due to improved soil structure, so they can be leached, obviously. And secondly, the formation of leachable sodium sulfate, we talked about just a minute ago, accounts for most of that particular mineral culprit. Number three, infiltration is greatly improved. Now, this is one of the reasons contributing to the 30% reduction in water use that's claimed for this technology. I saw that on my own farm, there was a 30% reduction and it really enabled us to get through the drought. We just used small, regular irrigation pulses and no one could believe we'd get through. I thought we'd run out three months earlier, but we did get through. It's actually really easy to test that infiltration. Remember how important infiltration is. You can test that infiltration claim. Just use a treated water, because the treated water holds its oxygen for several hours. So you can do a simple infiltration test with a 20-litre bucket of treated water and compare that to a bucket of untreated irrigation water. And remember how important infiltration is in a changing climate where short, sharp, intense rainfall events are so much more common. Number four, root growth is enhanced. Now, this phenomenon is partially explained by an increased supply of hormones, particularly auxins, which are produced by the oxygen-stimulated soil life. The second factor is the easy expansion potential for roots in a friable soil. Now, I remember visiting a large citrus farm, one of the very few units originally in Australia, or a series of units. That citrus farm was near Orange in New South Wales, and they were using the agri-water technology. Now, Several inspection pits within the tree rows were dug with an excavator and standing in that sort of grave, you could see the root profile of the tree down to two metres. And there obviously had been a really serious hard pan present because the roots from 15-year-old trees had simply stopped dead at 60 metres down and then fanned out above the hard plain. After 12 months of oxygenated water, 
Those roots were now drilling down into the friable soil, basically down to two metres, and this effectively represented a huge expansion of soil to utilise. Well, that happened to buy your neighbour's farm. There were earthworms everywhere. And I even decided to... There were several of these pits were digging across the farm. Same story everywhere, this change of friable soil right down to two metres. So I decided to seek the opinion of a contractor who was on the farm, had one of those huge big Mad Max-looking pruning machines with the great big spinning blades, and he stopped and I went over and chatted and I said, have you noticed any difference on the trees on this farm since last year when you were here? He said, what the bloody hell's going on here? I've never seen anything like it. And that was, you know, really this quite profound result from the treatment with this water device. So number five, microbial life is boosted. Now, earthworms are the most visible part of the soil food web and their populations had exploded in every farm I visited. It's not so easy to check the less visible inhabitants other than to assume they were flourishing due to the improved soil structure and the noticeably sweet soil smell, which is, of course, the evidence of thriving actinomycetes. However, that's not the case now. That was back then when I was checking it. Now you can simply measure increases in microbial biomass improvements in the soil and the all-important fungi-to-bacteria ratio with something called a microbiometer. Now, Rian has only recently acquired this technology and he's reporting doubling and trebling of microbial biomass and a substantial improvement in the fungi to bacteria ratio with lifts in the numbers of fungi following his water treatment advice. Number six, fertilizer performance is enhanced. So this is so apparent that two quite large South African fertilizer companies have recently begun to promote this water treatment because their clients are much more successful and their products look so much better. Number seven, nematode management is improved. So increases in beneficial predatory nematodes are measured and quite measurable, while there's a measurable decline in root knot nematodes. What's happening here? Well, the beneficials do better in oxygenated environments and predator nematodes and something called nematophagous fungi, which are nematode-trapping fungi, their increased numbers drive the decline in the bad guys. Okay, there's actually more benefits than that, but it's time for this podcast to draw to an end. Rian's remarkable technology has just joined an elite group of finalists in a large global initiative driven by the Rockefeller Foundation. It's called the Food Systems Game Changers Lab, and the winner will be given significant financial support to help achieve the potential of their invention. I wish Rian every success, because I seriously can't think of an innovation more deserving. There's actually quite an opportunity here, because Rian is seeking global distributors for his technology. If you're interested or know anyone suitable, you can email Rian. His address is riaan at agriwater, A-G-R-I-W-A-T-E-R dot Africa. Rian, R-I-A-A-N at agriwater, A-G-R-I-W-A-T-E-R dot Africa, A-F-R-I-C-A. Or you can call them direct on plus 27828539885 and he'd be happy to chat with you. So if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free again to share it around, maybe even write a review if you feel really generous. Remember that there remains an opportunity for one-on-one Zoom consults with me if you need any guidance. I've been doing lots of them and really enjoying it. It gives me a chance to connect. Just contact my personal assistant, Camila, to book a 60-minute session. Her email is camila, C-A-M-I-L-A, at nutritech, N-U-T-R-I-T-E-C-H dot com dot A-U. Camila at nutritech 
www.ecology.com.au. If you'd like to further explore some of these kind of regenerative concepts, then there's hundreds of my published articles that you can read if you want to visit www.nutritech.com.au. So I'm looking forward to chatting with you again next month. Until then, please stay happy and healthy and enjoy your farming.